Hey there, and welcome to GlobeMed Talk, where we bring you stories from the GlobeMed Network and the movement for global health equity. My name is Christine Badenas, and I'm the Communications and Development Manager for GlobeMed. In this episode, communications intern Katrina Green spoke with GlobeMed at Loyola University alumna Victoria Inahosa. Victoria shares about how her GlobeMed experience helps her keep an open perspective, how she ended up working as a lawyer on capital punishment cases, and challenges inherent to working in the legal system. We're always so inspired by what our alumni are able to do in the movement for global health equity using the foundation they get from their GlobeMed experience. The work of GlobeMed is long-term work where sometimes we're only able to see the impact after a student graduates. If you'd like to learn more about the GlobeMed model, check out our website at www.globemed.org. And now here's Kat and Victoria. Super excited to have you on today. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Victoria Nahosa. I was at GlobeMed at Loyola and I graduated from Loyola in 2016. While I was at GlobeMed at Loyola, I was the translation chair and then the internal co-president. Then I did the GROW internship. Then I was GROW coordinator. Then I graduated. Um, and then after that, I went to Cornell Law School. I got my law degree in 2019. I jumped around a little bit after that. So I spent a year at a law firm and then I spent a year clerking, which is kind of like the law version of a medical fellowship but I clerked for a judge on the border in Laredo, Texas. And then I transitioned into my current job where I'm an attorney for the Dallas Capital Habeas Unit. And in that capacity, I defend people on death row in Texas. And what was gained from your GlobeMed experience that contributes to your pursuits post-graduation? I think the biggest thing is the focus on asking questions instead of assuming that we have answers for everything. I mean, it's true in like all kinds of legal practice. Like when I was clerking, for example, there'd be cases where we would get a motion and something would be a little bit off. And it was really easy to assume, oh, this is probably off for X reason that nobody thought to mention, but is probably the case. And that would have made my life a lot easier and it would have created a lot less work for me. But my judge really drilled it into my head to not do that and to actually do the homework. And so once I did do the homework, Sometimes it, there was more there that I hadn't considered. And actually we maybe needed to call in the attorneys because maybe one of them wasn't telling us something they should have been telling us or things just weren't adding up. And that's especially true now with capital work where in capital cases, usually there's something that people aren't telling us about. Almost always there's something people aren't telling us about. So often the best defenses for us and the most frequent defenses for us, there's a really disproportionate amount of people on death row who have intellectual disabilities. There's a lot of people on death row who are mentally ill. There's a lot of people on death row who were really abused as children. But if you go to their families and you talk to them, they seem like they're just like, well, we were a normal family and everyone will say we're a normal family because to them, the abuse was normal and it was normalized. A lot of our clients are from places where if they were intellectually disabled, people knew they were kind of slower or naive, but it wasn't ever diagnosed, right? A lot of them were from really poor communities where that diagnosis wasn't accessible. If they were mentally ill, a lot of people were mentally ill, or it's like really stigmatized and no one wants to talk about it. People feel like it's their fault their kid has a mental illness, or people feel like it's their fault that their child has an intellectual disability. In the cases of abuse, a lot of times the family was involved. Sometimes the family did perpetrate the abuse. They're not going to tell you they did that. A lot of times for them, it's normal because they were also abused as children. And so in that case, we have to be very careful to not assume that we know what's going on in that family, because it's very easy to be like, okay, 100%, like this family probably abused their kid. Let me go in and get the goods and get out and then put it in a brief. 
but nine times out of 10, it runs a lot deeper than you would have expected. And no one is going to tell you if you're not taking the time to ask the questions, to build a relationship, to create that base. 90% of our work is not just coming in and asking questions. It's just sitting down and like, how was your day? How was your weekend? What have you been up to lately? So by creating those relationships, we're able to get those questions answered, but it really kind of leans into the globe meta values of, we don't assume that we know what people need or what people want or what's going on. We just create space and make people comfortable enough to share the things that they think we may need to know. So that's a long-winded answer, but the global med values really tap in a lot there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the communication that you develop in GlobeMed, especially when it's surrounding things that are typically stigmatized to talk about is huge. And moving on to the work that you're doing now, what has enticed you to practice death penalty defense, especially in Texas? It was kind of an accident, to be truly honest. I went to law school and I didn't realize this is going to, it always sounds really dumb when I say it, but it's, it's the honest to God truth. I didn't realize people expected me to become a lawyer. Um, so that was kind of a rude awakening. I had gone to law school because I had leaned into all the globe med stuff and the values and everything and had come to this conclusion of, okay, it's the systems that keep people sick. It's the systems that keep people poor or in just general versions of oppression, like, you know, insert your version here. And so, okay, I'm going to go to law school. I'm going to figure out how these systems are structured, why they're structured this way. And then I can learn to pick it apart. But that's kind of like, it's probably like going to school to like learn how to build stuff, like to be a construction worker or a carpenter or something so that you can go demolish things. Like that's not really how it works. And it's not how you are taught to, like you become slowly indoctrinated in a sense of like the culture is you are here to uphold the system, not dismantle it. And so if you're talking about dismantling it, people look at you like you're kind of cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs or like you don't appreciate democracy and you could be in like a country with no democracy. Now what? Um, so that was really sort of a, a grappling point for me. And it took a few years for me to process that. At the end of the road, my conclusion had been, I don't like law. I don't want to practice it. I want nothing to do with this. This was a huge mistake. I'm going to go work for firm, collect a paycheck, pay off my loans, and then F off and do something that actually matters to me. Maybe I'll go to med school like I thought I was going to before. And so I sign on the dotted line with that firm, which in law school, you do it right before your last year of law school. So you know, you're already, you graduate, you take the bar and you're already starting that next job. I signed on the dotted line. And then one of my friends said, you need to take a criminal procedure class. And I was like, I didn't know what else I was going to take. So I took it and I discovered death penalty work. And I was like, holy crap, this is the coolest thing ever. This is like the kind of law I want to practice because it's very based on storytelling. For me, it was realizing that there was a version of law that was not focused on stripping rules. It wasn't focused on stripping people's messy lives out and creating this very sterile system of rules. Like every other area of law was like, here's humans' lives. Yeah, they're pretty messy. We're going to try to like overlay certain standards that probably fit in most cases. And that's going to become the set of rules. And so you could say like, well, for people who are in like STEM fields, you could really easily say, where are you getting your statistics from? Like, where's your data coming from? There's a lot of judges who would say, for example, while they're making a rule from the bench, they could say, well, this isn't how I would do it. It's like, well, you're from a middle-class family. You had every educational opportunity in the world. You've never been in a situation where you're a single parent who's overcoming a drug addiction, relying on public housing and trying to raise a couple kids. Like 
very different worlds. And so the rules that exist don't often take those people who aren't being represented into account. So that's where I hated law, but capital work was all about marrying those stories to the law. It was the only area where I saw the opposite happening. So it's all about building these stories, these really complex, layered, dynamic stories and explaining to people, this is how this person fell between all of the cracks. And this is where the law is failing. And this is where we have an obligation to make sure that the law serves everybody, not just the people that we see on the day in and day out. So fell in love with death penalty work, immediately was trying to figure out how to get out. (laughs) Most of the death penalty states are in the South. So most of the death penalty defense is in the South. So I knew I was probably going to end up either in the South or in Ohio or Pennsylvania, because the Philadelphia unit is enormous. They're rock stars. Ended up in Texas ultimately because my husband's from Texas and he really wanted to come back home. So that was one of the accidents. And then the other accident was, well, I guess not accident, but more coincidence is that I am Latina and I speak fluent Spanish. And a lot of the people in the row here are Latinos, usually Mexican folks who speak fluent Spanish. If, if they don't speak Spanish, their parents often only speak Spanish, but most of the attorneys representing them are not Latino don't speak Spanish. And so there's a huge cultural barrier there. And so I understood that if I came to Texas, it kind of was a hand meets glove situation. Like not only would I be able to fill this need that they were having difficulty meeting, but for me, it was also an opportunity to bring my whole self to work and have my whole self be valued in ways that previous jobs had kind of asked me to sort of like tamp down on a little bit. So it's worked out really well. And we execute a lot here, but so far it's been manageable. (laughs) That's great. What has working on end stage appeals taught you about advocacy at the federal level? So what's difficult about end stage appeals is I think it's important to give some background on how appeals work in the criminal context really quickly. So you have like three layers. The first layer is direct appeal. That's directly after trial, which is why it's called direct appeal. That one's really limited in scope. So during direct appeal, you can only appeal things that are in the trial record. If it's not in the trial record, you can't make that argument. You're literally not allowed. So an example would be if a prosecutor during closing arguments of trial argued that, let's say you have a black client and the prosecutor during closing arguments compares your client to an animal and calls him a thug. That's really inflammatory and like racially charged language. It shouldn't be allowed during closing arguments. It typically isn't supposed to be allowed during closing arguments. That's something you would raise on direct appeal because once that trial transcript comes out, it's going to be in there and you don't need anything from outside the trial transcript to support that argument. Let's say you find out after trial, but before you file your direct appeal, let's say you find out that the prosecutor and the judge during the trial were snorting cocaine and talking about how terrible of a person the defendant was. That also obviously shouldn't be allowed but that's outside of the trial record, right? Like they're not, if they're not snorting Coke in open court, like it's not going to count. So you can't bring that on direct appeal. You can only bring that later in the habeas stages. So once you exhaust direct appeal, which is inside the actual trial record, then you move on to the habeas levels. So if the first one is direct appeal, the second is state habeas, the third is federal habeas. They have to go in that order. If you don't go in that order, you may accidentally waive all of your appeals. So once you're done with direct, you go into state, you file a state petition and you bring all this evidence from outside the record. You might say, for example, the prosecution was hiding evidence. You might say the judge was engaging in misconduct. 
you might say my client is intellectually disabled and that evidence was never brought before the jury. You might say the jurors were engaging in misconduct and they actually made their decision based off a Bible verse they read together, which is also not allowed. So there's, there's a number of arguments that you could make based on things that happen outside the record and based on investigations that you make from outside the record. The problem with state habeas is that when you file your state habeas petition, it ends up in front of the same judge that decided the case in the first place. And so that judge is also usually seeing the same prosecutors day in and day out because it's a pretty small community. I mean, if it's a revolving door, those prosecutors are there for criminal cases if not every day, multiple times a week, and they develop a relationship, which is normal. But you created a situation where the people who have the most to lose by granting your petition are the ones who have the power to grant your petition. <laughs> and so that becomes a problem. When you get to end stage, this is where we get concerned about a law called EDPA. We call it EDPA. It's The acronym is AEDPA, and it stands for the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. Um, it was implemented in the 90s. And so what this law tries to do is it tries to essentially tie our hands at the federal level. So the reason we have a federal habeas practice and a state habeas practice is mainly because of Jim Crow. I mean, there's a lot of other reasons around it, but really it kind of boils down to Jim Crow. Previously, the death penalty in the United States was basically a way of like legalized lynching. And so you would see the vast majority of people who were put on death row were often black men and sometimes they were poor white folks, but it was overwhelmingly form of legalized lynching. So when you have the South, essentially, when they would have their state habeas practices, they'd be like, nope, this is fine. What are you talking about? And so you have kind of the fox in charge of the hen house. You have then this federal habeas procedure that is developed as an oversight mechanism over the states where a federal court comes in and says, hey, Georgia, you can't just execute this guy and decide nothing is wrong. Obviously, something is wrong. And so they're supposed to be the ref that comes in. EDPA was established essentially to say, you know, there's too much going on here. It's taking years and years to execute someone. We just want to execute them and get it over with. These appeals are taking way too long. There's too many prisoners who aren't on death row who are also filing habeas appeals from prison pro se. We want to like slow this flood. We want them to stop filing them. The problem is that it's not actually addressing the issues that cause people to file them. It's not actually addressing the issues with the criminal justice system. It's just making it harder for people to get their day in court after those issues are created. And so what EDPA does at the federal habeas level is that it sets a standard that says that we are only allowed to review the state court decision if it's contrary to established law or if it's an unreasonable application of law. So unless the state court is blatantly wrong in applying the law, the federal court doesn't even get to look at it. And then even then you get into issues of, okay, sometimes this, the federal court gets to look at it, but do we get to introduce new evidence? Like if, if this evidence wasn't allowed in state court, is it allowed in federal court now? A lot of times it's not. And so it's like, you get to hear the claim, but it doesn't matter because you didn't get to present your evidence. So by the time you get to federal court, everyone at that level has sort of the most training, have the least skin in the game. And so you, you know, theoretically are most likely to get your fair shot. But all the steps leading up to federal court have tied your hands so that you can't actually bring in anything to support you. You basically have had like every door slammed in your face until then. So by the time you're at the federal stage, it's looking pretty bleak. And so to answer your question of, I guess, like, what have I learned about advocacy on the federal level? I think I would say, you know, you, you learn that you have to be really creative you learn that if people had the, this quality of representation at the state level, they probably wouldn't be on the row now. And so it kind of gets the cart before the horse. 
But I think the biggest thing you have to learn is that you have to surrender this illusion of control. I think it's very easy to come in with this sense of like, well, I'm on this amazing team of lawyers and we have all this training and we have all these resources now that we're at the federal level and we're gonna like change something. As the attorneys, you probably have the least power over anything with the exception of the client. The defense attorneys and the client are the least empowered people at the federal level. The people with the power really are the state prosecutors, the state judges, the federal judge, sometimes jurors, but it's very easy to break if you choose to believe that you are the one whose mistake is going to make a difference. And I think just surrendering to the sense of you're not executing your client, the state is executing your client, you are doing your damnedest to protect them. But at the end of the day, this system is much, much bigger than you. And like accepting your role within it is really critical because if you can't accept it, you can't keep doing the work. You just start to feel hopeless. So I think context being the most important part. I think that's such an important thing to realize, just working with any type of advocacy. You are not creating the problem. You're just doing your best to fix it and to start tearing down these systems. That's definitely important for self-preservation. And actually just elaborating on that, how does your work intersect systemic barriers such as racism, xenophobia, ableism, and class? I would say my work exists because of those barriers. So like I said, something like 30% of folks on the row, I don't actually have the stat directly in front of me, but I'm pretty sure it's something like 30% of folks on the row at least have an intellectual disability. Something like 30% of folks on the row are really mentally ill. I'm not saying like just depression. Actually, I'm pretty sure all the folks on the row have depression and are probably suicidal on some level. But like when I say that they have mental illness, I'm saying like they're schizophrenic or schizoaffective. They are delusional. They are so deeply traumatized that it's very hard for them to function normally. A lot of times those folks get diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, which is kind of a tricky can of worms because they get diagnosed off a checklist in the back of the DSM. But if you go into the front, it'll say, don't just use the checklist (laughs) because the checklist doesn't account for trauma and trauma underlying trauma can look a lot like ASPD, but it's not ASPD, it's trauma. So in our cases, we have a lot of clients that look like they have antisocial personality disorders, can be very difficult to work with, can be not particularly nice, but it's because they were like, when you look at the history of abuse, you're like, well, I can't say I would be any better. You know, if you have parents who have abused you in every way possible growing up and nobody ever stepped in to do anything then yeah, you're going to become a really difficult person. (laughs) That's what you understand as protecting yourself. There's obviously a lot of racism involved with respect to the history that I mentioned in terms of essentially legalized lynching. There has been a history of sexual orientation discrimination too. There was a guy, I think his first name was Charles, Charles Rines, who was executed. I want to say it was It was one of the Northern states like uh, Montana or Nebraska. It's not, if it's not Texas, I don't know them off the top of my head, but he was executed in part because he was gay. There was concern among the jurors that if he was sentenced to life in prison, that he would enjoy prison because he would enjoy being locked up with all these men and therefore he should get the death penalty. And he was ultimately executed. So the vast majority of the time, in my opinion, when people are executed, it's because The reason that the death penalty exists really is because we fail to see the humanity of particular people in our environment. And we've decided that because we can't see their humanity, that must mean they're not fully human. 
And that's obviously not true, but the challenge is these are people who are dramatically different from us and we have to do that work and we have to engage in that struggle. And the reason that they are where they are is often because of all those systems. They've done what they could do. Most of the time they've given up by now, but the death penalty would not exist if it was not for all these different systems of bias and prejudice and misunderstanding that exist in so many different iterations in America. I know that when you were talking about the end stage appeals, you went into a lot on EDPA, but can you elaborate on why habeas corpus is not enough protection against those confounding factors? I can elaborate a little bit, which is it's not, Um, but I mean, one of the reasons as kind of touched on before is like EDPA makes it really difficult for federal habeas to do its job at all. And the whole point of federal habeas is to oversee the States. I mean, you could get into an argument that like, well, the states haven't been like that since the 1960s. It's been 50, 60 years. At some point, we have to let the states do their thing. I mean, I don't know. I I think at the end of the day, there has to be a balance between our federal values and our local ones. And so that's where I'm, I'm kind of skeptical. I appreciate the arguments for state comedy, but I think that what keeps us one whole country as opposed to a collection of states is that we agree on a baseline number of values and we have to bring everyone into that fold on those baseline values. And so I think that's the role that the federal government and the federal court should be playing there. Beyond that, you know, I think one thing to bear in mind is that the laws apply very differently in different places. So one example I can give is intellectual disability for our clients. So The Supreme Court said in the 2000s that it is illegal to execute somebody who is intellectually disabled in the United States. For that, it was totally fine. So then you have this series of cases trying to figure out, okay, like what makes this person, is this person intellectually disabled? What about that person? Like, where is the dividing line? Texas in general does not appreciate being told what to do. It's sort of a Texan thing, I guess. And so the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, which is the highest state court for criminal cases, came up with their own test to determine whether or not somebody was intellectually disabled. They were called the Briseño factors because the factors came up in a case called Ex parte Briseño. And so those factors were all based on the character of Lenny from Mice and Men and not on any clinical understanding of what makes somebody intellectually disabled. So one of the factors was, for example, did this crime require the person to plan it? If so, if they have the capacity to think ahead, they must not be intellectually disabled, which is again, fully divorced from any clinical understanding of intellectual disability. And so they denied a number of intellectual disability claims. And that eventually worked its way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, no, what are you talking about? Like, pick up a DSM, like do something, but you can't base it off a John Steinbeck novella. And so in that case, it worked out well. But in a lot of cases, by the time we get there, EDPA has tied our hands. And on top of that, we're dealing with courts that are pretty hostile to us and what we're doing. They view, there's a general perception of criminal defenders, particularly capital defenders, as sort of pro-crime, like manipulative people who are gaming the system. You know, people view us as like trying to get the mind hunter guys out so they can commit some other horrific murder. And like, none of us are pro-crime. We just don't think that this person should be killed. And this is our client and our job is to represent them. So... I think the combination of what EDPA has done and the hostility towards capital defenders, just when you you go in knowing the deck is stacked against you and it always will be. So I think in general, by the time we're at habeas corpus, 
the whole field has been laid out. You just have to do your best not to, to trip up, but it's designed for you to trip up. Like EDPA in particular is designed to be confusing. And a lot of lawyers still don't understand EDPA because it was that that was the whole point. But it's really the combination of EDPA plus the overall hostility towards our clients that makes it so that by the time we get to habeas, it's incredibly difficult to accomplish anything, honestly. So really the work needs to be done at the trial level. Most of these violations occur at a trial level. There should be better protection. So for example, one challenge that we would raise on habeas is called a Batson challenge. We would be arguing that prosecution illegally removed jurors of color from the jury or potential jurors of color from the jury. But we have to show that they did it with the intention of discriminating. And that's really hard if the prosecutor doesn't literally say like, I removed them because they were black and I think black people all support each other. As long as you give any other reason, it's fine. So you can say, oh, I know so-and-so is also black, but I removed them because they attend uh, a Baptist church and our client attends a Baptist church. And so we think that they might have a connection that way. Or you could say, I know that so-and-so is Latina and our client is Latino, but we removed them because they're both Spanish speakers. And we thought that they might have that in common. So you can have these cursory reasons. And as long as it holds water, it doesn't even have to hold very much water. As long as it holds some water, usually that's okay. That shouldn't be the standard for keeping people on juries, right? The bar is so low that it makes it virtually impossible to correct it at the trial level. Another major problem is that who you get to defend you at at trial So you have a right to a defense, right? And so if you're lucky and you live somewhere that has a public defender, then you would get assigned a public defender who does these jobs day in and day out. If you're not lucky and you live somewhere that doesn't have a public defender, what happens is the court is going to essentially pull out a list of all the local attorneys and they're going to pick a name and that's your new defender. And it could be, you know, Peter Francis Geraci from Chicago. It could be somebody who does personal injury cases all day. It could be somebody who only does insurance contracts. Now they're your defender. In capital cases, they've tamped down on that in Texas quite a bit. So now the rule is you have to have represented a capital case before. That obviously doesn't mean that you did a good job at it. There's one guy who represented something like 40 plus capital cases and lost every single one to the point where there was a a section of the row that called themselves the the Garanote guys because they all had him as their lawyer and he got all of them sentenced to death. So these the quality of representation is absolutely terrible. Sometimes you talk to those same attorneys and they'll say things like, yeah, I mean, what can I say? My, t- my client's a terrible person. I did my best. They didn't do their best. They didn't do any investigation. They didn't do any background work. Another layer is even if they do want to do their best, they're not being paid by the court to do their best. So they might get paid a bulk sum of something like like $15,000 for the whole case. A capital case takes a year to develop. You know, it could take anywhere from six months to a year, hundreds of hours of work. That amount of money sounds like a lot, but when you break it down to the hour, that's like what, 50 bucks an hour? As an attorney where you're not working by yourself, you're paying a staff, right? You usually have some kind of assistant, you have paralegals you have to pay an investigator. So usually you're not compensated enough to do a good job either. So overall, just the systems that exist at the trial level are so bad that by the time we get to habeas, we're just like putting a bandaid over broken legs. The system is so dysfunctional that we're just trying to sort of patch it 
and be able to say like, look, and the prosecution is trying to say, oh, it's not that bad. It's fine. So it's, it's just not the way that we should be addressing these problems. They should be addressed at the trial level. And that's just a, a, a few of the problems. In the Dark did a really good season on Curtis Flowers's case. I don't know if you've heard it, but Curtis Flowers was a guy who, he's from Mississippi, and he was accused of murdering, he was accused of murdering a group of people at a furniture store. The short version is that he's innocent, but the prosecutor decided he was their guy and tried him, I think it was eight times, and he was sentenced to death six times. And each time it got reversed by the Mississippi Supreme Court and then later by the Supreme Court as well for gross misconduct on the prosecutor's part. Um, And there were so many layers of things that went wrong. But then also when you get relief, what happens? The prosecutor just charges you again and you get to go again because double jeopardy doesn't attach until you're found not guilty. So if there's a mistrial or if your guilty verdict gets overturned, that's not the same thing as being found not guilty. They can charge you again. And that's what happened in Curtis Flowers' case. He just got charged over and over and he spent 30 years overall locked up either in pretrial waiting for his trial or on death row in Mississippi for a crime that he never committed. And he only just now in the last two years, two, three years was released and he gets to live his life again. But that's more than half of his life that he was locked up and he didn't do any of it. So I think, you know, that's a great example. If people are looking for examples of cases where the system goes just horrifically off the tracks, just at the trial level, Curtis Flowers' case is a really, really good one. And In the Dark, I think it's season two does a really great spread on it. That gets into my next question. What would you like people to know about the criminal justice system and how they can help? I mean, it's hard to help with those problems because those problems are so court created and lawyer created. It's tricky because the law is sort of designed to be inaccessible. You can't even really have activism around it because the questions themselves are made so abstract and esoteric and difficult to access that like, how can you say like, guys, we're going to gather and we're going to march for better bats and protections. <laughs> like there's just no way. That being said, you know, as far as what people on the day to day, like non-lawyers can do, I think it's two big things that kind of marry into each other. The biggest thing, in my opinion, is there's a lot of focus on innocence and people who are actually innocent. And I think that that's great, but I think we need more focus on the people that are guilty too. Most of my clients did it and I'm fine with that. I'm not saying I'm fine with their crime. What I'm saying is that I'm fine representing them even though they did it or even though they probably did it. Frankly, I don't really care if they did or didn't do it because my job isn't to decide if they did it or what their punishment is. My job is to represent them. But my point here is that, you know, there's people who do horrific things with their life and they do them for horrific reasons, often because of things that we can't possibly begin to wrap our heads around. That's not to say that it's okay. That is to say that these are people who are in the dark, like just dark places we can't possibly understand. And those people should be given an opportunity for redemption. People can grow, people can change. And that's not to say that they will grow or change, but they should be given an opportunity to. There are some people who have been on death row who are now out because they had got really lucky. They had great lawyers. They eventually became parole eligible and are out contributing the world. I met someone recently at a conference in Texas. He's actually now working with an organization, a nonprofit in Chicago. His name is Ronaldo Hudson, so I have to give him a shout out. But he he was on death row in Illinois before he was eventually granted clemency. And now he's out and he's working with this prison nonprofit. And he's very open about, yeah, I did it. I'm not going to pretend I didn't do it. But for him reaching that low and having to come to terms with where his life was at 
gave him an opportunity. He didn't know how to read when he was locked up. He grew up in Chicago and he never really became literate because that's how bad some of the schools can be. Ronaldo couldn't read when he was locked up. He learned to read in prison. He educated himself. He graduated with a master's degree while he was incarcerated. So for some folks, that's that's the first time they've had any structure in their life. They've never had any structure before. And so even just giving them opportunities to learn while they're locked up gives them an opportunity to decide what they want to expose themselves to, who they want to be in the world, who they want to decide to be for the rest of their lives. So I think this idea that it's only innocent people that deserve our sense of pity or or grace or mercy, I think that that's absurd. I think the guilty people probably need it more and they're capable of so much, but the the difference really comes when we decide to say, you don't have to be defined by the worst thing you ever did. I certainly wouldn't want to be defined by the worst thing I ever did. I've done a lot of really embarrassing things. I wouldn't want that to follow me forever. (laughs) I try to do better every day. I would hope everyone else does too. I think the other thing that people could do other than sort of like paying attention to this issue of guilt over innocence is offering people that sense of grace. If you meet somebody who has been in prison, if you hear about people who have been in prison, just give them an opportunity to be a better version of themselves on any day. I have a story that comes to mind that for me is sort of one of those moments where I really felt that grace. And it sort of felt like, uh, honestly, kind of a sacred space. I was at the conference where I met Ronaldo Hudson, who was the guy on death row, who is no longer on the row. He's outliving his life. But so at the same conference, there was a prosecutor that was invited. He's the prosecutor in Texas who gets to decide who's going to die next, at least in Harris County, which is where Houston is. Because once you're on the row, that doesn't mean you're already on the list. They have to actively seek a warrant for you. So there's people who've been on the row for 20 years and haven't gotten an execution date. There's somebody who may be on the row for five years and gets an execution date tomorrow. It's just whoever they decide to seek a date for. So this prosecutor was present. It, it was a hostile environment towards him. <laughs> no one was happy to see him. And so I give him props for the bravery of showing up. But he, you know, at, at one point got very defensive and started talking about the horrific things that the clients had done, you know, so-and-so if they did this and they deserve to die, which was a difficult thing for a lot of us to hear. Because for some of some people in the room, he had had people's clients executed, people that they had known for a long time. So it's it, it could be very difficult to hear that and kind of, you know, you know, kind of triggering. And so you could see sort of the room starting to gear up and like ready to fight this guy and just ready to like hands shoot up and be like, how could you say that about our client? You've never met them. You don't know their family. You don't know who they are since the crime has happened. And instead the mic went to Ronaldo who had been on the row and it became this conversation where he says to the prosecutor, you know, I was on the row. This is what happened to me, but you said that I deserve to die. So I want to know, how do you make sense of that in your mind? I killed somebody. And in a way you're kind of killing someone too. You could be killing me. How do you make sense of that? Like, how do you wrap your head around it? And so at first the prosecutor goes, oh, it sounds like your case, you were actually innocent. And Ronaldo goes, no, I did it. Um, So it's funny because it's immediately that like, oh, I can't, I can't be okay with it unless I've decided you were unjustly convicted. Ronaldo goes, no, no, no. I was justly convicted. I did it. And then the prosecutor was again, kind of like sputtering. He didn't really know what to do. And then he ends up saying something that's not really much of anything, but sort of everyone else kind of relaxed in that room. And there was this sort of almost grace that I felt personally coming over it. And I think it was this realization that 
do I think this prosecutor is wrong? hundred percent. I think that what he's doing is something that's going to be very difficult for him to live with, but we're all people trying to do our best. And we're all people that are trying to do the best thing for our families, for ourselves, for our sense of confidence, for our self-esteem, for the, the communities that we live in. We're all trying to do our best. And sometimes we have no idea what that looks like. And our clients were doing the same thing. They just had no idea what it looked like. My point here is that everyone does awful things. Not everyone ends up on the row. I think we should try to forgive people on the row the same way that we would try to forgive this prosecutor for doing a job that I think probably is incredibly damaging every day. But I think like that, that sort of emotional component is what people should be taking away from it more than any of the concrete activist points that are often raised. I don't think we're going to heal from fixing the system. I think we're going to heal from connecting with one another. It sounds like that story challenged a lot of people's personal beliefs. It sounds like an incredible moment. Yeah. I think the biggest thing that I've had challenged and that I would continue to want everyone to challenge is this sense of, are people bad people? Is there such a thing as a bad person? Is there such a thing as a good person? We do terrible things and we do great things, but we're not definitively good or bad. That's something that I have to remind myself of every day. And I always want the people around me to remember because every now and then I'll hear someone say like, so-and-so is a terrible person. And well, so-and-so is the hero of their own story. They think that you're a terrible person probably, or they're doing their best. They, they truly probably do think that they're a good person. There's no such thing as being a good or a bad person. It's not this static thing. You are whatever choice you make every second of your life. And just giving people that opportunity to make a different choice, just because you start doing something bad, it doesn't mean you have to finish it. And so that that is, is really the biggest challenge is kind of comes back to that story. It's about challenging that belief that people can be bad or good. People just are. So what keeps you going when you're faced with such intense and arduous cases? Touching a little bit on what I said before too. I think it's a lot of knowing my role and that like, if I lose, it's not because I screwed something up or because my work is pointless. It's because I'm part of a much broader field, a much broader group of attorneys who all have very different gifts and are in very different places at different times. And the fact that I might lose a case or lose a motion, or one of my clients might get executed, that doesn't mean that what I did didn't matter. And it doesn't mean that it won't matter one day. There's a lot of cases that lost because they were right too early. There's actually an article that basically pulls the statistics of how many cases made arguments that were laughed off at the time and then later became actual constitutional law because they were right too soon. You could be laying foundations for that and not even realize it. You're part of something bigger than yourself. And just keeping that in mind that what you see is not, it's just a tree. It's not the forest. But a lot of it is also talking to my colleagues, like incorporating self-care in that way and learning to sort of check my own ego. So sometimes I'll be afraid to talk to my colleagues because I don't want them to think that I can't hack it or that like I'm getting too affected by a case and maybe we shouldn't put her on this case because she's so affected already. That's not really the vibe in my office at least because like we know that everyone's affected by it and the only time it'll break you is if you refuse to talk about it. So just talking to your colleagues, like they get it, they've been through it and they don't always know the right thing to say, but one of them will. (laughs) And so just being open about where you're at and being a community and supporting one another through that and being patient with one another through that. So that has also been incredibly helpful. They're the ones that have really helped me get it together when I'm feeling low in some cases. 
Do you have any advice for students looking to follow a career path similar to yours? Yeah, I think the biggest advice is that, well, okay, two main things, I guess two prongs. The first prong is work out your own stuff first. Like go to, go to therapy if that's something that's an option for you. If you're a person of faith, you know, talk to a pastor at your group, do something because we all have a lot of baggage that we carry with us every day. And it's important to recognize it because, you know, I've, I've met people who didn't work out their baggage until they got into the work. And then it's hard because they're taking on baggage as they're dealing with the past stuff. And a lot of the current baggage is triggering old stuff. And so they kind of reinforce one another and it makes it a lot harder to dig out of that versus I was, I guess, fortunate in that I started being set off by my baggage in law school and that's where I got started seeking support. And so I was able to sort of clean house before I got started. And so I know how to, I know how to manage my expectations better. I have a sense of perspective. I know that most of the time when I'm feeling miserable, it's because I'm not looking at things in a way that is balanced and I need to kind of come back to center and figure out where am I missing the balance and how can I reincorporate it? But in general, work out your own stuff first. Like if you have beef with people in your life, why do you have beef? Why do these people upset you so much? Why do certain situations aggravate you? Like for me, it was, why am I so insecure? (laughs) Um, And like getting a real sense of grounding and realizing that I can think highly of my own work without getting other people to give me a gold star. I have a strong sense of my work. And if nobody else compliments it, I still know I did well. That's been really critical because a lot of times people don't have the time to give you a gold star or a pat on the back. And that doesn't mean you didn't do great. And they weren't super like impressed or proud of the work that you did. It just means that it wasn't a priority and you have to be able to keep going, even if they don't tell you that. The second thing is you don't have to do anything. There's this narrative of like, there's a right way to do things. And I bought into that a lot too, which I think fed into a lot of my anxiety in law school. There was a sense of like, well, you can't possibly work for a federal defense unit if you didn't clerk on a circuit court or you didn't get straight A's. My grades in law school were pretty crap until about halfway through. And so I was told you have to do X, Y, Z. You have to do this other thing. And it wasn't until my last year of law school where I realized all of that was mostly other people making up excuses for the decisions they made or making up excuses for why they stopped trying because they had accepted like, well, you know, my grades weren't that good. So these are my options now. That's not true. Your options are always your options. No doors close. The difference is some people stop running and other people keep to the race. That's the only difference. Sometimes you may get tripped up and you may have to do extra work to catch up. That doesn't mean that something is out of reach. It just means that your path is going to be different to get there. And then like other jobs where I, there was this sense sometimes of like, you know, once I developed a sense of confidence in my own abilities as a, as a young lawyer, there was sometimes a sense of like, wow, you must be pretty big for your britches. You maybe should take a step back. You're a young attorney. You don't know what you're talking about. And I did know what I was talking about. <laughs> so I think if, if a job doesn't appreciate you, don't stay. If something doesn't make you happy, don't keep doing it. I'm not saying quit on a whim and just go like F it, but you don't have to do anything. And if it's not something that is truly making you happy and truly adding a sense of meaning in your life, then don't do it. Find a way to get out. Truly, there is absolutely no reason that you should resign yourself to a life that doesn't fulfill you in every way that matters. So those are the two biggest things is really clean out your own internal stuff, deal with that however you need to, and then honor it 
by making sure you're giving it the space that it deserves and cleaning out the stuff externally that isn't feeding into the best version of yourself. I, there's this quote somewhere, I think it was from Brene Brown podcast, but I think <laughs> there, it was this quote, an acorn doesn't have to strive to become a tree. It, it just is supposed to be a tree. What stops it is all the weeds and crap. If you're not watering it enough, like you get in the way, but if you get out of your own way, you're going to be who you are supposed to be. You don't get cut up on all this. I need to strive stuff. Just get out of your own way. That's, that's the work. It's the opposite of what I had thought at the time, but now I know better. And that's the advice that I would give is just, I guess it all sums up and get out of your own way. <laughs> that's amazing. Thank you so much. I love the relationship that you have with storytelling and the way that you come at ideas. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much to Victoria for sharing her story and how her GlobeMed experience has impacted the way she views the world. We've put links to more about EDPA, Charles Rines's case, and the second season of In the Dark about Curtis Flowers in the show notes. If you'd like to learn more about GlobeMed's impact, you can go to www.globemed.org forward slash impact to see more about the ways our alumni are building a healthier, more equitable world. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.